Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 John, where we're going to pick back up in chapter 2. We'll be in verses 18 through 27 this morning. And I know we have some visitors here uh, due to today's events, and so we welcome you. Uh, one of the things our church does is we work, uh, typically we'll go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Uh, it allows us to be held accountable as preachers, that we're going to teach the whole counsel of God. Uh, and we, what we saw this morning in our new members class is that all of Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so we've been going through First John for the last handful of weeks now, and this letter is written by the beloved disciple John, to answer the question primarily, do you believe? Or are you a believer of Jesus Christ? When we were participating in the baptism service, I, I kind of told you how the, the young man who was struggling to discern whether or not he was a believer, he and I spent time in this letter. Because what we see is John comes out and he says, this is how you know and then he'll give signs that are characteristics of true believers. So far what we've seen, the foundational fundamental truth is that true believers have a proper belief about who Jesus is. That Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And so we're going to see that theme repeated again this morning. But this is foundational to the Christian faith. That we have a proper understanding of who Jesus is. We also saw that true believers walk in the light and not in the darkness. That they live in truth and they, don't, they do not hide in shame and guilt. That they love others like God has loved them. Sacrificially. Looking at, at Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. We also lay down our lives for one another. That is fruit of the gospel in our lives. And last week we saw that true believers love and pursue God rather than the world. And so we do not love the things of the world out of an overflow of the love that we have for God. And that's not just things that are temporal on this earth that are physical things that we make chase after, like money or retirement accounts or security or family or people or relationships, but it's also those things internally because what we know is that we are corrupt from the inside out. From the fall of man, our souls are depraved. And that as believers, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we still have a struggle of flesh and spirit. True believers do not love the world or the things in the world. This morning we will see another characteristic of true believers, and that is perseverance in the faith. That's why I told that young man that night, as I shared when we were performing the baptism ceremony this, earlier today, that if he was trusting in Jesus that night, he would be trusting in him the next day. Because what we see is a true characteristic of believers is that we will persevere in the faith. So, let's read our text this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 
but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one denies the Son and has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning asking for that anointing Holy Spirit to teach us, to lead us in truth. Father, encourage us, those, those of us who have trusted in your Son, Jesus, for salvation. Encourage us with this doctrine of perseverance, of eternal security that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, if there are any here who are not of you, as we see described in the word that we have before us today, we pray to do a work that only you can do, to open up their eyes, to open up their heart, to receive the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ, and to trust in him. Father, I also pray, as we sang the words earlier, that we would trust you. And that when things don't make sense, we would be able to respond that your ways are higher than our own. We confess to you that those are difficult words to sing and actually hold true in our hearts, Father, but help us to do that. This morning, sanctify us through the preaching of your word and show us where we might apply it to be doers of the word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So John starts off, and he he starts off verse 18 with the word children, and we've seen this repeated throughout uh, this letter already. Uh, What this does is it communicates for us a little bit about the the relationship that John has with his original audience that he was writing to. Clearly here, he is the father figure writing to a group of children. He is their leader. He He has spent time with them, so there's this intimacy that he has with them as well. But also, one of the things that John does throughout this letter is this is his way of introducing a new thought. So what is that thought that we see? Well, he starts it off by saying, it is the last hour. What we see throughout the whole New Testament is that when we see that phrase, the last hour or the last days, this is referring to the era between Jesus' ascension and his return. So when we think of in light of all eternity, this plan, this redemptive plan that began before the foundation of the world, and we consider where we are today, we are indeed in the last hour. What that means is God's plan is almost complete. 
It's almost done. We are just waiting and longing for the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to bring peace here on earth as it is in heaven. What we see throughout the New Testament is this is often referred to as the last days. If you look at Acts chapter 2, by the way, if you have a phone, it's probably a good thing for you today. Normally I would not say that, but I'm going to be moving through Scripture because this idea of the end times and where we are today combined with the idea of the perseverance of the saints is one that I want you to see in Scripture, not just here in John. So we're going to be going pretty quickly. So unless you've got those tabs in your Bible or you did Bible drillers when you were younger, a phone's probably a good thing today. But if you don't have, hey, just keep up with me. Turn the pages. I'm going to keep going. But we're going to start off in Acts chapter 2 where we see the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? So Jesus, before he left, he said, hey, I'm going to send another helper for you. I'm going to send the Spirit, and it's good that I do that. So the disciples are all, all in one place, and it's the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they start speaking in every language, right? Because everyone was here in Jerusalem at this time. They had all gathered for this, this traditional ceremony. And all of a sudden, the disciples are able to speak in a language that they have not spoken, yet other people are hearing their tongue. And they kind of freaked out. Even to the point of saying, well, these guys surely are drunk. Like, what are they doing? And Peter stands up. And he gives his sermon. And we're not going to read the whole thing this morning. But I want you to see some of the signs that we are indeed in the last days, in the last hour. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What we have here in Acts chapter 2 follows Acts chapter 1 where Jesus said to the disciples, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So you see this gospel spreading, not just to the Jews, but also to all people. And that's what's going on here as we see the promised Holy Spirit coming. And Peter stands up. If you remember, Peter's always the one that sticks his foot in his mouth, right? During the ministry of Jesus, he's always wrong. But given the Holy Spirit now, we have a completely different man who stands up, still bold, still con confrontational, but now he speaks truth. And the Holy Spirit has reminded him of the things that he has learned. And so he stands up and says, guys, this is what the prophet Joel said would happen. We are in the last days. We see something similar in Hebrews chapter 1, where the, the author of Hebrews tells us that in 
in former days. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So church, we are in the last hour. What this does for us, is it, it communicates the urgency that we should have, right? Because the mission is not complete. The mission of, of making disciples of all nations, of every people, tongue, tribe, and nation is not complete. And so there is an urgency because that clock is ticking and we are in the last hour and at any moment, this communicates the imminency of Christ that at any moment he could return. And with that creates anticipation, right? We look forward to that. This is the last hour. It's approaching midnight. And that time could come any second. And we long for that, right? But until it does, our mission is not yet done. So we should be responding with urgency, sharing the gospel with those who need to hear it. One of the signs of the last hours we see here in 1 John, we see the idea of the Antichrist and Antichrists. Literally, that word means against Christ. So what we can conclude is that anyone who stands against Christ is considered an Antichrist here for John. But he also differentiates between the Antichrist and Antichrists. He talks about the future coming Antichrist and then says, but even now Antichrists are here. We see from the vision of John in Revelation chapter 13 where John sees this vision of the Antichrist, the one who would come with the power and authority of Satan, where Satan would give him his authority, he would give him his power to rule on the earth. Revelation chapter 13, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority." One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. We have this vision 
of the Antichrist who will come in the authority and power of Satan. But even here, you see that this is temporary, right? He was, only, he was allowed to rule for 42 months. There is a definitive time in which his rule and reign will end. As we've already seen in the letter that John wrote in, in, first, in first John, darkness is passing away. It is dying because Jesus has ushered in the light. We also see a glimpse here of what we're going to see in more detail in 1 John, the perseverance of the saints. Because it says that all on the earth will worship this beast except for those whose name was written in the book of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Even there we see that if true believers will persevere in the faith. Jesus himself talked about the Antichrist. Because what John is doing here in 1 John is he's warning this church against these individuals. And it, what we see is that these are a group of people who were once of the church, right? So they're, they're in the church, but then at some point they left the church. And so what are we to do with that? And John calls them Antichrist. Now what we need to know is these specific people he's talking about are not holding to the truth of who Jesus was. They're trying to communicate to this, this group of people that there is a higher truth that you can ascend to. That yes, we understand what, what Jesus and what the traditional Christian faith at this time has said, but there's other things that we need to teach. Jesus warned about the Antichrist as they would be a shadow of what was to come in Matthew chapter 24. Starting in verse 3, as the disciples are going to ask Jesus about the signs of the coming age, right? The signs of the last hour, the last days. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. He continues in verse 23. And he says, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ. Or there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. We have here a description of those who are not holding to the truth of who Christ is. They are against the biblical Christ that we see communicated. And John, being a disciple, a follower of that Jesus, knows who Jesus is. He walked with him. He heard the words that he proclaimed. And as he's now hearing these other ideas that are being communicated about his friend, his Lord, and his Savior, he's saying, do not be led astray. They are antichrists. He goes on to describe characteristics of these antichrists, and he does so with a method of drawing a clear line, a clear distinction between Christian and antichrist. And he does so using words like us and they. As I was reading it initially, you may have heard that in verse 19, where the Christian is referred to as us, and the Antichrist, those who were once of us but have now left, they are 
they. Look again in verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Here's where we see our characteristic of true believers. That time will tell. Time will tell. Because true believers will persevere in the faith. This is the main theological point that we should walk away from this morning from this specific passage. The eternal security of the believer. This is the beautiful and encouraging doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. It is implied here that the believer continues. The believer perseveres. In John chapter 6, if you recall when we were walking through that gospel over the course of over a year, John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40, we have a very clear picture of this. As Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, he says in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes will be raised up on the last day. Guaranteed. He says the same thing, something similar in John chapter 10. Same group of people when he's talking about how he is the good shepherd. In verses 27 through 29, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one. Not Satan. Not the enemy. No one, because the Father is greater than all. What we have here is a promise of eternal security, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Something that cannot be earned cannot be lost. And just so that we don't think it's just a, an idea that John had, again, I, I could have pointed you many places, but in the letter to the Ephesian church, as Paul is recounting the many spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, he says this in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What Paul is saying there is, for those who have heard the gospel proclaimed and have received it and have responded in faith, in belief, 
and have walked in repentance, for those that have done that, they have an inheritance promised to them. And they have been given the Holy Spirit to seal them as a guarantee of that inheritance until we acquire it. If you've trusted in Christ, you know that you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit and you cannot lose it. The Holy Spirit will not lose you. The Father will not allow you to be snatched out of His hand. There is a promised inheritance that you will one day receive. And it's guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit that John will talk about in verse 20. In verse 19... He also makes the opposite point about the non-believer, about the Antichrist. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. They went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. It's the opposite truth. Alistair Begg, a pastor and theologian, said that there are some who share our earthly company who do not share our heavenly birth. I'll say that again. There are some who share our earthly company who do not share our heavenly birth. What that means is, even in this room today, there may be some among us who we're sharing company with, but they don't know Jesus. They have not been given that rebirth, that regeneration of the Holy Spirit. For the sake of time, because I know we had a lot of events this morning, I'm going to paraphrase. So, Caitlin, I'm going to skip some of the verses here. But in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, what we see is this, this comes up often, especially with this teaching of do I know if I'm a believer or not? And what happens is there are many who will come to him on that day and he says, they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things in your name? Did we not perform signs and wonders and prophesy in your name? And Jesus would say, depart from me, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. What, what you have there, a self-righteousness that existed, right? Like, I did all of these things. I did this, and I did this. And Jesus said, you don't understand. It's me who has to do the work. You are workers of lawlessness. Depart from me. You never knew me. That is what we have here with with this group of people that John is warning the church about. These are those who were of you. They were among you, but they have since departed from you. And what he's saying is they've done that because they've actually left Christ. We see something similar in Mark chapter 4 as Jesus tells a parable. You recall the parable of the sower and the seed. And one of the the types of soil that seed was planted in was the rocky ground that did not have roots. So the seed was planted, could not grow deep, but it sprung up really quickly. And Jesus would later say, this is who that is. It's the group of people who received the gospel with joy, with this zeal, but it did not have root. It did not take root in their souls. They had not truly trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. So when trial or temptation came, the sun rose, they were scorched. And they left. They departed. These that John is warning the church about left the church because they left Christ. The implication for us is twofold. One, it's a warning to any who do not hold to the biblical teaching of who Jesus is. That he's the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. Anybody want to finish? 200%? Awesome. Uh, 
that he is the God-man, that he is the pre-existent son who is with the Father, who left the glory that he shared with the Father, took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived a sinless life, faced temptation in every way that we have, and went to the cross on our behalf to pay the penalty that we deserved. And he showed that he was God by conquering death as he was resurrected, showing that that payment that we deserved, the payment of eternal wrath and judgment for our sin, was paid in full. Satisfied. If we believe. And if he is anything less than that for you, here is your warning from the beloved disciple John. You're not of the Father. On the flip side of that, there's eternal security for the believer. That God's grace is sufficient for you each and every day. That includes yesterday, that includes today, and it includes all of your tomorrows. That regardless of how bad your sins are, Jesus' blood paid the penalty for that. That's why I wanted to read Lakota's own handwriting, his own thoughts, that his old self was dying, was dead, and now he was raised to walk in newness of life. That's who we are. We are not defined by our sin. Our, our identity is now in Christ. And that each morning we find new mercies as our feet hit the floor and we roll out of bed. His mercies are new each and every day. And our Father will never lose us because He has eternally sealed us with the Holy Spirit that indwells us. This is the same Holy Spirit that He writes about in verse 20 when He talks about that they were anointed by the Holy One. And the work of the Holy Spirit is leading us into the knowledge of truth into spiritual maturity so that we may not be tossed to and fro by the waves, right? That we would not be carried away by every wind of doctrine, every deceitful scheme, craftiness, and human cunning. This is the promised helper that Jesus spoke of in John 16 when he said, it is good for me to leave and depart from you because I'm going to send another helper. Alas paraclete was the Greek term, if you recall from John's gospel. And what that meant is I'm going to send one, yes, another, but one of the very same kind. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Who would convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and would lead us into all truth. What truth? In the context of this letter, John has a specific truth in mind. In verse 21, he says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Savior. Anyone who denies that denies the Father. You cannot have one without the other. Antichrists deny the Father and the Son, not necessarily outright, maybe not explicitly, but they will twist the truth. They will hold to half-truths 
They will say things like, Jesus is important, but he is not necessary. They will say that Jesus is significant, but he is not a savior. Those who are against Christ will say that Jesus' death made a way, but it is not the only way. Antichrist will say that Jesus' death paid the penalty, but it is not necessary to know him as long as you walk in the good that you do know. Antichrist will say that Jesus was God-filled, but he was not God in the flesh. They will say that he was adopted as the firstborn son, but that he is not the pre-existent son who is with the, the Father eternally. To such persons, John makes a very bold and clear proclamation, one that I probably would not be able to make myself, but John did. And so I just recall what he says, no one who denies Christ has the Father. The biblical Christ, the true Christ, you deny him, you do not have the Father. We also see John make the opposite point, which is encouraging. He's not just negative Nancy, Debbie Downer. He says those who confess the Son have the Father. Paul wrote to the Roman church that if anyone confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead, that they would be saved. That anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the Christian faith without whom this whole thing collapses. So it is essential to know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one promised in Scripture. He is not just a good man. And this is why John tells the church to stand firm in Christ in verse 24. He says to abide or to remain in Christ the Christ that they have heard from the beginning, not the one of whom the false teachers were trying to convince them of. So our application this morning is just as it was for the original audience. To remain. To stand firm in the truth of Christ. How do we do that? We know we're supposed to. We see that in Scripture, right? He says, abide. We know why. Because only if we abide will we persevere in the faith. But how? What does that look like? Paul gives us an idea in, in his letter to the Roman church in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Church, we are in the last hour. And I understand that the enemy knows how this thing ends. And so as we're approaching those last seconds of the end of the age where the, the enemy will reign and then his, his, rule, will be, his rule will be ended, he's going to start increasing his attack. We're not, we're not in this progressive, like, pursuing perfection where, where we're getting better and better and better. I hope you see that, right? In fact, humanity is getting worse and worse and worse, and it's left up to the church to proclaim the good news that transforms our souls because outside of that, we are depraved human beings. And the enemy is just going to keep increasing his barrage 
We need to understand that we are at war. Yes, there is a time of peace coming. Our rest will be here one day, but it is not yet here. And so we are at war. Not against flesh and blood, but against the evil spiritual forces. And it is in Christ and in Christ alone that we can stand firm and persevere. We are to daily renew our minds. With the only weapon we have been given, if Nick, I had Nick read Ephesians chapter 6 because of this idea that we, we find ourselves in. In the, in the last hour, we are at spiritual warfare, and so we need to be taking on the full armor of God, right? And if you think about the different components, there's only one that is a weapon. Everything else is defensive, right? It's to protect us. We have the belt of truth. And I asked Nick to read that specifically because with our youth, he, he made a very good illustration that I'm sure will bring laughs, but it's true. If we're, if we're going into battle and we forget our belt of truth, what will happen to our pants? They fall down. And we're stumbling over our pants, around our ankles, and we're of no use in the battle. Understand what that means is when we don't have the belt of truth on, we stumble over false lies, false teaching. It trips us up, and we're of no use in the battle. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. Not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, which protects our soul, which protects our heart. We put on the as shoes, the gospel of peace, ready to bring this good news to disarm the enemy and his oppression over man. We pick up the shield of faith. That, that shield that protects us, no matter what the enemy throws our way, it extinguishes every dart. We put on the helmet of salvation that protects our minds from false doctrine. But there's one thing that we were given that was a weapon to go on the offense. And it's the word. It's our sword. We are to be daily renewing our minds so that we might not be conformed to the world, but be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. How many days do we go into battle without our weapon? You want to know why we feel beat up? Because we're leaving the weapon behind. And we go into battle, we're still protected because we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're not going to lose the salvation, but we're getting attacked from left and right, from every direction, and we're never going on the offense. We're not renewing our minds daily to avoid being conformed to the world, but to be transformed So what does it look like to stand firm in Christ? First, we need to renew our minds daily so that we might be transformed into the image of His Son. And when we do this, we will remain in Him. We will receive the promise in verse 25, eternal life. John closes with an additional warning and encouragement in verse 26 and 27. In verse 26, he basically says, hey, be alert. I'm writing these things to you so that you will know that these things are going on. And in verse 27, is while you're alert, take encouragement in the fact that you have the power of the Holy Spirit. So trust in Him who abides in you to protect you. He indicates here that they didn't need any other teaching. 
Now, clearly, John did not believe that they don't need teachers, right? Because if John believed that, he wouldn't have written the letter to begin with, right? So this is not saying that you can go home and you don't need anybody else to proclaim truth in your life, that you can go home with your Bible and the power of the Holy Spirit and you can come to a, a, a definitive understanding of Scripture that is true and that is accurate. Because what do we know about ourselves? We're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but we've got corrupted minds, we've got corrupted hearts, and we have been designed for community, right? What was going on here is John saying, you don't need anything outside of what was originally delivered to you, right? That's why he says, abide in that original truth that was taught to you. In the things that you have been originally told by the, by the apostles, you don't need anything outside of that. Nothing needs to be added to that. Abide in that. Abide in him. And so I'll conclude our time of study in the same way. Brother and sister, remain in the truth of Christ and receive eternal life that awaits you once this final hour is complete. In the midst of the war, stand firm. Church, collectively, let's do this together. Even when it's not fun to walk in obedience, even when it's difficult to display faith, let us all press on toward the prize striving side by side for the sake of the gospel so that we might receive the prize, not eternal life. Eternal life is not the prize. Jesus Christ is our prize. And we long for that. And know, leave here today knowing that you will persevere because of the Holy Spirit who has sealed you for the day that you will receive your inheritance. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for the, the good news of eternal security that you have given us. That your son Jesus fully satisfied your wrath on our behalf. And so there's nothing more that we could do to earn it or to lose it. But you have looked upon him and you have been satisfied. And so we ask that you would continue by the power of your Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to transform us, and to allow us to go into the mission field, this battlefield that we find ourselves in, and bring the gospel of peace with us. Father, give us discipline to renew our minds daily, to see your word not as something that is just extra to our lives, but as the necessary food, the sustenance that we need each and every day. Forgive us when we look to the world to satisfy our hunger when you have given us bread. Father, if there's anyone here who has not trusted in your Son, Jesus Christ, the Christ that we see in your word for salvation, Father, we pray that you would call them to yourself. That though today, right now, in this moment, they are not of you, they can be. they would look upon your son and believe in him for salvation. We pray and ask as we go into this next time of worship that we would respond with overwhelming joy in the fact that you have sealed us. That you hold us in the palm of your hand and no one will ever snatch us out of it. That we couldn't even run away if we wanted to. 
but that you will hold us until the day where we, we will be reunited with our King and look Him in the face and praise you eternally. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.